Now, you should be able to find the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John. The 17th chapter of the Gospel of John. When you get it, look carefully at verse 1 again. Verse number 1. We're in a study of this 17th chapter. And when you get into a study of God's Word, it takes the individual as well as the speaker to get into it. The best way for you to get into it is to open your Bible and see what God says in His Word. John chapter number 17, verse number 1, These words spake Jesus and lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Doesn't quite read that way, does it? That's because it's the different prayer attached to the opening of this verse. The model prayer is the prayer which Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. He did not pray. They did the praying But in the 17th chapter of John, you find the Lord's Prayer. I believe that it is the longest recorded prayer of Jesus Christ in the Bible. The 17th of John. We come to this third division of this intercessory prayer, and that's what it is. And it deals with Christ praying for his church and future believers or those who will be saved in the days and the years to come. You may put your name down in this division if you've been saved, if you've come to know the Lord. You see, this is where you come in. This is where I come in. We were not saved in the Old Testament. And we were not saved when our Lord was crucified 2,000 years ago. However, we have been saved since. We can look back and see how the Father answered the prayer of His Son. As I have stated several times in the beginning and since the beginning of the study, there are three major divisions in John 17. Division number one. Christ prays for himself. He begins this prayer praying for himself in verses 1 through 8. If you'll notice carefully, he only makes two requests in that first division. In it, he prays that the Father will glorify him so that he might in turn glorify the Father. You find that in verse number 1. And the second prayer that he prays in this first division is to have the pre-incarnate glory restored. The glory that he had once had with the Father, have it restored. That's found in verse number 5. That brings you to the second division of the prayer, which is in verses 9 through 19. Christ prays for the apostles and the immediate believers. Now, the eleven apostles are these, Peter, James, John, 
Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, little James, Thaddeus, and Simon. You say, well, that's only 11. That's who's praying for. He makes it very, very clear in verse 9, he's not praying for the world. Judas was the twelfth apostle, but Judas was a reprobate apostle. And he was of the world. And Christ said, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for those that thou hast given me. Not only praying for the apostles, but for some people who were saved by God's grace during the earthly ministry of Christ 2,000 years ago. So that second division, he's praying for the apostles and immediate believers. Now, three things he covers in that. Number one, he prays for their security in verses 11 and 12. Will the Father keep those saved that the Son has saved? Every one of them. Verses 11 and 12 make that very, very clear. And we'll conserve time by not repeating the reading of those, but that's verses 11 and 12. He prays for their security, that once they've been saved, they'll always be saved because the Father will keep them. Second of all, he prays for their joy. In spite of persecution, in spite of betrayal, in spite of death, it won't make any difference because we have the joy of the Lord abiding in our hearts. So did the apostles. Every one of the apostles died and had a horrible death. Every one of them faced persecution, but the joy of the Lord was continually with them. He prayed for that, and it was so ordered. The third thing he prayed for was their sanctification. In verse number 17, notice, He says, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. We learned last Sunday that the word sanctification or sanctify means to set apart. Even as Jesus Christ was set apart by God the Father to come to this world and pay the debt of sin that humanity owed, though that be so, We are also set apart by God because we're new creatures in Christ Jesus. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We use the illustration about this auditorium, this worship center. This is a sanctified room in our building whereby we worship God. There's no other room like it. And we come in here to do that very thing. There are other rooms where we do other things, but we don't do other things other than worship the Lord. And that's because we set this apart to do that. So he prays for their sanctification. Now, let's notice the reading of this final division. Talked about division number one, division number two. This is the third and final division of the intercessory prayer of the Lord. It's verses 20 through 26. Notice carefully the reading. Neither pray I for these alone. Now, he's not just praying for the apostles now. He's not just praying for the folk that were saved during his earthly ministry, 
But he says, I'm not praying for these alone, but for them also, which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gavest me, I've given them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee, and these have known that thou hast sent me, and I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the eleventh in the series of studies we've been journeying through since uh, we started. And uh, it deals basically with uh, Christ praying for those that shall come to be saved and the union that should envelop that body. Having said that, Let's look at verses 20 through 21 this morning. Verses 20 through 21. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they may all be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. The first thing we see here is the absolute certainty of future believers. There are going to be future believers. Now, who said that? The Lord Jesus said that. Not only were the apostles saved, and not only were other people saved during the earthly ministry of Christ, but he said there's going to continue to be people saved in the days and months and years to come. And dear friends, that's the way it's been for the last 2,000 years. The Word of God has been taught, and there is a definite... There is a definite... I'm sorry, we need to... We're going to have to have a word of prayer... There is a distraction, and I wish our nursery, is our nursery open this morning? Would you, if, if you would, I'd appreciate that. We have a place, and babies, babies do that, and they do that quite well, and that's a good thing. It's when they stop, it worries me. Please, please help me there. I would appreciate it so much. Yes, we have a good nursery, and, uh, and it's a secure nursery. 
Yes. That's fine. Yes. By the way, while we're taking care of that, uh, my wife, (coughs) Nora, had another birthday yesterday. Isn't that something? Isn't that great? And, And we went out to eat last night. You say, well, what did you eat? I have no earthly idea. There was a baby present. And the baby took over the entire restaurant. Not for five minutes, but for the entire time we were there. That's what babies do, you know. And, and I hope that, 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 uh, that, that people understand that. And that's perfectly all right. The absolute certainty of future believers. They shall believe on me. Might I mention to you this subject of irresistible grace guarantees that there are going to be people saved from the time Christ said this until his second coming. What is irresistible grace? No man can come unto me, said Christ, except the Father which has sent me draw him. And may I say everyone whom the Spirit of God moves on and draws and pulls in, every one of them will be saved by the grace of God. Just as surely as those in the past were brought in, just that surely the remainder of God's elect will brought in. You say, well, when do you think the Lord will come back? He'll come back when he wants to. But I can assure you, my dear friends, that the elect of God, every last one of them, will be brought in. Doesn't mean universal salvation, not at all. But it does mean that there are going to be a lot of people saved since Christ prayed this prayer. The Bible is very clear. May I give you the quote, and I will read the scripture. I'm going to go a little fast. John 10, 16, Christ said, Other sheep I have which are not of this fold. He said that to his immediate disciples. Did it mean other sheep? What kind of other sheep? It meant Gentile sheep. There are going to be some Gentiles saved in addition to the Jews that have already been saved and they're going to be one fold and they're going to have one shepherd that's going to take place. He said, they shall hear my voice and there shall be one fold and there'll be one shepherd. In Matthew chapter 8, verse number 11, I say unto you that many, I love that word, many, shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Have you ever noticed God has never tried to save anybody? God saves whomsoever he will when he wishes to do so. John 4 verse 4 says, He must needs go through Samaria. Why did he have to go through Samaria? Because there was a Samaritan woman there that was one of his children, one of his elect that must be brought in. And she was brought in. And in 2 Peter 3, 9, which has often been misquoted and misunderstood, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, 
but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish. Now, don't make the mistake of thinking he meant by that that it is his will that everybody in the world be saved. It is given to usward. Those of us who've been saved by the grace of God, the elect of God. So we have here the wills and the shalls that are certain, and they will always be certain. When God says it shall happen and it will happen, you can get ready for it. Many are going to come in and be saved. The absolute certainty of future believers. There is, I believe, in Romans eight twenty-eight through 30, a golden chain of redemption. It will be familiar to your hearing, Romans 8, verses 28 through 30. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Now, pay attention to the words, for whom he did foreknow. He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. There's no breakdown in God's redemptive purpose in saving sinners. It's no such thing as a person, well, he had a good start, but he just didn't, he fizzled out. Well, if he fizzled out, his faith wasn't real to begin with, my dear friends. What I'm saying is this, the foreknowledge of God is the love of God. It is not the knowledge of God, but it is the fact that God loved the people before they were ever born. Adam knew his wife. Now that doesn't mean he was getting formally acquainted with her in the Garden of Eden. It meant that they came together and formed one body or one flesh. He knew her knowledge and foreknowledge is used in the Bible speaking of the love that God gave on his people before the worlds were ever created. He didn't love everybody, but he loved somebody. And those somebodies that he loved went through this process of predestination, which is election. They were called, that is, they were regenerated and converted. They were justified and they were glorified. Everyone on the foreknowledge roster will finish with glorification None fall from grace along the way. None of them do. And as I said to begin with, some use Judas. Well, he he didn't fall from grace. He fell from his office of being one of the apostles. But he never knew the Lord. Now then, notice second of all, we have the instrumentality of their salvation. How are they going to be saved? We're talking about multitudes of people, hundreds of thousands and millions of people over the last 2,000 years have come to know Christ. How did they come to know Christ? How did they come to know salvation? Your Bible says, through their word. When the apostles opened up their mouths, they began to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And it was through the preaching of the word that many of these had been brought to faith in Jesus Christ. God's word is preached from generation to generation. And all the sheep will be brought in. All the goats will be denied. You have problems with that? I thought you might. In Matthew chapter number 25, verse number 31, the Bible says, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. He'll set the sheep on his right hand. He'll put the goats on his left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Who was it prepared for? Not for goats. It was prepared for sheep. Well, you say, what happened to the goats? In verse 41, Then shall he say also to them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And these, that is the goats, shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous unto life eternal. So as God's word is preached, the sheep will be brought in and all the goats will be denied. Romans 1.16 Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth to the Jew first and also to the Greek or to the Gentile. In 1 Corinthians 1.21 For after that in the wisdom of God the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Please note, not by foolish preaching, but by the foolishness of preaching. It's the most amazing thing. If you try to analyze it from a human standpoint, most preaching you wonder when it's all over with, what do you hope to accomplish by it? You get some preacher up in the pulpit, he may look sharp, he may look dumb, he may be smart, he may be dumb. And while he's preaching, he may get beside himself and he may begin to shout a little bit and wave his arms and wave and, and, and say certain things. And, and after it's over with, the people go home and say, well, what do you go to church for that for? Because God has selected by the preaching of the gospel that people are saved. They're saved by the preaching of the word of God. Foolishness of preaching. Mark sixteen fifteen through 16. He said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And that verse says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And everyone who believes should follow the Lord in baptism. But he that believeth not shall be damned. 
And in Romans 10, 14, how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how can they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they going to hear if they don't have a preacher? They were called 11 apostles. By the way, there's a replacement in that chain of apostles because they're called the 12 apostles. Well, whatever happened to the replacement there? Well, they replaced it with a guy by the name of Matthias. And you don't read anything about Matthias anywhere in the Bible. Isn't that amazing? We have the name specifically, which I gave you, of the apostles. You come to Matthias, he's not even mentioned anymore. But the apostle Paul is. And Paul said, I was an apostle born out of season. Now, that's my opinion. I believe Paul was the replacement disciple of Judas Iscariot. Paul. But nonetheless, my dear friends, you have the purpose of their being to preach and to preach. And it is through the preaching that people are going to be saved. I think that's what he's saying in verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. The instrumentality of salvation, the word of God. Another instrument of their salvation is the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of the everlasting covenant guarantees that all of the elect sheep will be brought in. You'll find that reference in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 20, which says this, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. There are many covenants mentioned in your Bible, and you find them plentifully in the Old Testament. There was the Abrahamic covenant. There was the Mosaic covenant. There was the Adamic covenant, and on and on. But Hebrews is talking about a special covenant. It is called the everlasting covenant. It means it never will stop going on. It is continual on and on and on. Well, what is that covenant? He revealed it in this 17th of John, verse number 2, as thou hast given him power, as God the Father has given Christ power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And when we studied that phrase many weeks ago, I pointed out to you, actually that's the word of election. God selected a people, and as many as he gave to his son, those are the ones that Christ would die for, and the blood would atone for, called the blood of the everlasting covenant. It's found in verse 2. It's found in verse 6. It's found in verse 9. It's found in verse 11. It's found in verse 12. And it's found in verse 24. What's found there? This phrase, to as many as thou hast given him. Now, when did the Father give them to the Son? Before the worlds were ever created. 
there was a divine counsel between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. In election, the Father gave some to the Son. He gave some people to the Son. We're chosen in Him before the foundation of the world, according to Ephesians. In election, the Father gave the elect to the Son. In atonement, the Son died for those whom the Father gave Him. And in conversion or regeneration, the Holy Spirit effectually brings them to the Son, seeking mercy and forgiveness. By the way, that's the only way God saves sinners. It's called grace. By His, not by works of righteousness, which we've done, but according to His mercy and according to His grace. The covenant was made involving the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit before creation and was sealed by the blood of Christ. It is the blood of the everlasting covenant. That is why, my dear friends, there will continue to be people saved until the very end of time. And throughout eternity, one of the things for which we'll be so grateful to God for was the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, who paid our sin debt. It's an everlasting covenant. Look at verse number 21 that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, that they all may be one. All of the people are going to be saved after the ascension of Christ until his second coming for 2,000 years. Thus far, all of the saved people are to be one as the Father and the Son are one. Not the same person, but Christ was in the Father and the Father was in Christ. The Son was in the Father and the Father was in the Son. That there be that type of unity between everyone who's been saved by His grace. He's praying for that. They'll be together. They'll be one. Now what that does not mean what that does not mean. It does not mean one in uniformity. We're not clones. We're not all alike. Not one in intelligence. Some people are more intelligent than others. Not one in skin color. There are black people, there are white people, there are red-skinned people, and so forth and so on. Not one in accomplishment. There are some believers that can do things that other believers cannot do. Not one in talent. There are some believers that are more talented than others. So it does not mean one in uniformity, that we're all exactly alike. It does not mean that that they may all be one, does not mean uniformity. It does not mean ecumenicity. What is ecumenicity? It says we all have to believe the same thing. 
And that every person who has any religious convictions at all, if they're really serious about it, that's truth to them. And so we all just believe generally the truth. Not so. To do this, we would have to do away with doctrine. And doctrine is one of the things, it's the top of the list, what the Word of God is profitable for. The Word of God is profitable for doctrine. And it is doctrine that divides. Yet it is doctrine for which the Word is most profitable. We've got to know what we believe and why we believe it. And we believe it because the Bible teaches it does not mean that we all believe the same thing. There are some things we ought all to believe, but that does not mean everything that some believe that others also ought to believe and say, well, I've always believed one denomination is good as another. You're absolutely right. The whole bunch are going to hell. That's right. Because we're not saved by the Baptist denomination. I hope you haven't been led down that road before. I used to say until they ran me out of Southern Baptist churches that there's more greatest Southern Baptist conventions going to be held in hell. And you know, I had people just didn't really like that too much. But it's okay. I can tell you this. If they try to come to Christ or try to come do anything on their own ability and their own works, they'll never be saved that way. Whoever they are, Methodist, Baptist, so forth and so on. I do not believe it refers to the general unity that binds all children of God. There is a general unity that binds us all. And I quickly mention them. One is unity of the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 4 verse 3, all believers have the Holy Spirit. If a man doesn't have the Spirit of God, he doesn't belong to him. So if you are a Christian and I'm a Christian, then we both have the Holy Spirit. He has us. Unity of the Holy Spirit, it's a general ground of union, but he's not talking about that. And I said there are about seven things there. Unity of the Holy Spirit, unity of peace. Every believer has come to know the peace that passes understanding. I believe that with all of my heart, because the fruit of the Spirit is what? Peace. Peace. Seven grounds of general union that bind the children of God. He's not talking about that. But there are some that confuse it with that. There's the unity of saving faith. There's only one faith. And that faith, according to Ephesians 4.13, is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Only one way to be saved, saving faith, is the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no Christianity apart from that. You say, well, what about these people who are sincere? Hell's going to be filled with sincere people. I promise you that. Of unity of heart. Acts 4.32. No, all new creatures are in Christ Jesus. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Regardless of other things we may differ on, if you've been saved, you're a new creature in Christ. I'm a new creature in Christ. It's basic. There's the unity of love. Colossians 2.2. Though we have denominational differences... I believe we should still exhibit some type of love toward all of God's children. Let's, let's be careful that we become isolationist. Uh, we don't want to do that. And at the same time, we're not ecumenical, 
ecumenicalist either. There's unity of mind in 1 Corinthians 1.10. Be of the same mind. All of God's children should go and join together in the pursuit of God's glory. Those are just basic things, general things of unity. Unity of judgment. 1 Corinthians 1.10. All of God's children should stand against sin and uphold righteousness. I hope that's all right. Because that's the way it is. All of God's children should stand against sin and uphold righteousness. If we belong to the Lord or else we need to change our profession. If it does not mean that general unity that we have, what does it mean? This togetherness, this oneness. Again, that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. This unity is the same unity that binds the Father with the Son. That we might experience the unity as the Father and the Son have with each other. Unity. The Son is united to the Father by blood. That's the Son of God. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is united to the Father by blood. Therefore, this threefold union between Father and Son is a union by blood. A union by blood. Do we not sometimes use that same rationality when we say, well, we're blood brothers. And even though we're talking about some people that may not be related to us, it's a close association. Or we're blood. High blood, how's it going? Blood's a very important thing. The life is in the blood. If you don't think blood's important, the life is in the blood. And the Son is united to the Father by blood. 1 Peter 1.19, But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Please give me a moment on this. A baby gets his blood from his father. And since Adam is the father of us all, there's something wrong with our blood. For as in Adam, all die. So why do people die? They're in Adam. We were born in Adam. And everybody in Adam dies. But in Christ, we live. Because there's a difference in the blood. Jesus Christ, I believe, got his blood from his father. And his blood was pure and precious. I, let me give you something to think about. Mm. 
I cannot agree with preachers who say there was no difference in the blood of Jesus Christ or anybody else. That the same kind of blood that flowed through Christ's body is the same blood that flowed through Judas Iscariot's body. I do not believe that. Because when you speak of the blood of Christ, it's always pure and it's always precious. And he lives forever. All believers are one in the blood of Christ. As the Son is in the Father by blood, so we are united together by that same blood. Once in a rare while, somebody will come along and write a song that substantiates that. And the song I am referring to was sung by the Spear family, which may or may not mean anything to you at all. But if you love southern gospel music, you probably have heard of the Spear family. They sang for 50 years, no longer singing. They got so old, they wore out. But they sang a song that captured this very thought. See if you can hear it. The name of the song is, I'm a child of the king. It is not the same song in our hymn book. That song is entitled, A Child of the King. But this song they sing is, I'm so glad I am a child of the king. Just the words of the chorus. See if you pick up on it. Oh yes, oh yes, I'm a child of the king. His royal blood now flows in my veins. And I who was wretched and poor now can sing, praise God, praise God. I'm a child of the king. His royal blood now flows in my veins. I know I have natural blood, but spiritually speaking, my dear friends, I'm on spiritual blood supply, and I will live forever because of the blood of Christ. Though I might be detoured along the way called a little process death, basically I'm to live forever. It's a covenant that God made with the Son and the Holy Spirit. And it's a union by blood. All believers are in the blood of Christ. As the Son is in the Father by blood, so we're united together by that same blood. I'm so sorry for some of our denominations. They don't sing, Brother Roger, they don't sing nothing but the blood anymore. They say, that's gory. We don't like... Let me tell you, it's the most beautiful part of our hymn book that sings about the blood of Jesus Christ cleansing us from our sins. Second of all, togetherness, this oneness, is a union by nature. In Luke 1, 34 through 35, 
you jot the reference down, you can read it. I'll give you the theological terminology for it. It refers to the hypostatic union of Christ. Not only was he perfect man, but he was also perfect God. One man with two distinct natures. Did you know that we as God's people have become partaker of another nature? In 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 4, it tells us that we've become partakers of God's nature. It means we've taken on another nature in addition to our human nature. Now we have a divine nature within us that causes us to love the things of the Lord. That causes us to love His church. That causes us to love His word. It is a divine nature, and the divine nature is at constant battle with that old human nature. And one day the human nature will be laid aside, and we'll have that nature in Christ. But two natures. It is a union by will. That's the third one, and we'll be closing with that one. John five nineteen. the Son can do nothing of himself. The Son can do, that's what the Lord said. The Son can do nothing of Himself but what He seeth the Father do. Jesus Christ and the Father were one in will. I can assure you there never was a time when the Father pulled one direction and the Son pulled a different direction. They were always perfectly united in God's sovereign purpose. He came to do the will of the Father who sent Him In Gethsemane, he prayed, not my will, thine be done. And he taught his disciples, thy will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. This will be added a facet to the beauty of glory. That is, all the millions of God's children will be completely submissive to doing the will of God throughout eternity. Oneness. It is a union of doctrine. John seven sixteen. Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but it's his that sent me. Jesus Christ was a doctrinal preacher, okay? My father did not have one doctrine, and the son had another doctrine. Hey, give that one some thought. They had the same doctrine. They were unified in doctrine. So must it be with all believers that we might be one. While we may differ on some things about the Bible, we must be in perfect agreement on matters of salvation and where it comes from. This includes the person and work of Christ. This includes how the Lord saves sinners. We must stand for this unity, oneness. We cannot and must not try to agree with all of the messages that are being preached today. We have being preached today a salvation by works, a salvation by ritualism and ceremony, a salvation by rules and regulations, a salvation by morality, a salvation by humanism, a salvation by the brotherhood of man. We must discard that junk. And preach the only gospel that there is. 
and in the union of body that they may be like the Father and the Son perfectly joined together. Colossians 2.9 says, In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are united in one body of Jesus Christ. And so as believers, we must have unity in the church, which is the body of Christ. I've kept you long enough. You've been very kind and patient to listen to this stumbling preacher today. Let's stand, please, for prayer. Dear Father in heaven,